Uh, I'm going to um, ask you guys to uh, just put your cell phones away unless you're using it for the Bible. Um, turn your chairs this way if you're facing away from the stage. I know that whenever we do, we do tables for a reason, but I also know what comes with that is a lot of temptation. It's like hanging a steak in front of a starving man. Like you want to converse, you want to talk, and I get that. Um, but just try to really tune in this morning as we get into the book of Judges once again. Um, so uh, turn to Judges chapter 10. So, you know, you guys know I have this three-year-old daughter. I've talked about her before. Sienna is her name. And she is a wonderful blessing to our family. And she is obsessed with princesses and mermaids. And so she, she goes into any store. And, and Disney is, is genius because they understand that if they just slap a mermaid or a princess on anything, they will sell it to little girls. So um, any store we go into, she will find something that has Disney princess or mermaid aerial theme on there, and she wants it, whatever it is. It could be, it could be a paperclip. It could be like the smallest little entity. It could be something like this, but it has a mermaid on it or some attachment to a mermaid or princess. She wants it, and she wants me to buy it for her. And so the other day I went to, um, I went to Lowe's, and I thought, if there's one store in the world that will not have anything that's princess, it's going to be Lowe's. And so I went into Lowe's to find some watering stuff for my yard, and we turned this corner, and there it was. There is this rack of, of like hand shovels, princess, Disney princess hand shovels. And I found myself getting angry at Disney. I was like, Really, Disney? You, you expect me to, okay, I can get, I understand like an umbrella or a lunchbox princess theme, but this doesn't even make sense, okay, because everyone knows princesses don't get dirty, right? Everyone knows princesses don't do work. Everyone knows that that's what the peasants do, and princesses, they don't delve into the earth, and, and try to work with their hands like that. And so, of course, with my, my daughter, though, she sees it, and she's just like, ah, oh, Daddy, Daddy, can you get this for me? And I'm like, no. I'm not buying that for you. And then guess what I did? I bought it for her. I was like, I can get her to work. This is going to work out well for me, right? So she is obsessed. Like, she's three and a half. She's obsessed with princess, mermaid, anything like that. She's obsessed with it. And here's the funny thing, though. I, had a, um, I heard Matt Chandler say this one time. He said, up until the time your daughter's like five years old, it's okay to say like, oh, you're a princess, you're a princess, you're a princess. Once she turns like five, you're like, you're not a princess, you're not a princess, you're not a princess, because she'll start to believe it and be like, everyone should treat me like a princess, right? And so she has this obsession with anything princess. And I would say, We've talked a lot about idolatry in this uh, series of Judges, and it's a theme we see over and over and over again. And I would say that a very simple definition for idolatry is anything you're obsessed with, anything you are obsessed about, anything that just consumes you. For my daughter, she's three and a half. It is cute right now, but it's not going to be cute if she's 15, calling herself a princess, right? Um, and so, so, so right now, her obsession is princesses. And so I'm going to ask you a real simple question this morning. What are the things, and I hope it's not princesses, but what are the things 
that, um, that are, you're consumed by, that you're obsessed with, all right? Simple question. What apps on your phone do you go to the most? What are you obsessed about? What are you obsessed with, right? And so I didn't ask you to answer the question. I just want you to think about it um, as we dive into yet another story of idolatry in the nation of Israel. So look with me at Judges chapter 10, verse 6. And we're going to teach a little bit, then you have some discussion, teach some more, then you have some discussion at the end. So verse 6, chapter 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So before we'd get like one or two gods listed, this time we have an entire list of gods. This is idolatry buffet. This is like an, an all-you-can-eat idolatry buffet. This is idolatry on steroids for the Israelites, and they are not holding back in the least. And what we see with their idolatry is that idolatry leads to even more idolatry. Something interesting, the nation of Israel, whatever countries they chose to adopt the gods of, that nation always ended up oppressing them. So idolatry for the nation of Israel always led to slavery. It always led to them being oppressed by the nation's gods that they began to worship. So idolatry always leads to slavery. And I think the same thing is true for you and I. Whenever you and I replace Jesus with something or someone else, we get enslaved. We get enslaved by that someone or that thing. And idolatry always leads to us being enslaved by the idols. Second point, slavery leads to more idolatry. There's a cycle here. So idolatry leads to slavery, but slavery also leads to more idolatry. And so what happens for us is we get ensnared by the idol, and we begin trying to, the idol causes pain, the idol causes disappointment, the, the idol causes frustration because we weren't created for that idol. We're created for Jesus Christ. And so what happens to us is we start to try to kill the pain and deal with the frustration by chasing after more and more idolatry. And so idolatry or slavery leads to more and more of the same idolatry. And so Israel's at a point now where they've just got just massive idolatry going on. Um, they get enslaved. It leads to more idolatry. You know, God, get us out. They're praying to their, their many gods now, praying to all their gods. Gods, get us out of the mess that we're in. And so when you and I get enslaved, we try to fix it with more idolatry. And it's nothing more than trying to put a fire out with gasoline, right? It's, it's nothing more than trying to, and, and who would ever think of doing that? Like, who would ever think of, hey, there's a fire. Where's my gasoline can? No one ever would do that. That would be foolish. But when it comes to our frustration with idolatry, that's exactly what we do. We're frustrated by our own idolatry. And so we decide, okay, I'm going to chase more idols. We don't verbally say it. We're not conscious of it. But we try to 
put that fire out in a sense with gasoline and it makes things even worse. We try to fix our situation with more idolatry. One way this happens, I think, is the obvious one for any of us is, is relationships. Um, if you idolize a dating relationship and it ends badly, what do you begin to think to yourself? I just need another relationship. Like, it, it was just the wrong person. Or I wasn't in a good place when I was with that person. I'm in a better place now, so I can do better the next time. I can fix this. And so we just start to band-aid it over and over and over again, and we're really trying to fight idolatry with just more idolatry. Same thing happens in marriage. People get married. They think it's the right one. They think it's a good decision, and everything hits the fan. They, 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 their, their marriage just is on the rocks, and they think to themselves, you know what? I married the wrong person. If I can just find somebody else, that will be the answer. And what they're doing is they're trying to fix their idolatry with more idolatry. And this is what the nation of Israel did. This is like a drunk who tries to fix the hangover by drinking more. Like, I got a headache. I, I feel so awful. I, I'm going to drink some more, right? This is what is happening with the nation of Israel. Slavery, idolatry leads to slavery, and slavery leads to even more idolatry. Look at Judges chapter 10, verse 7. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So we haven't really touched on this topic a whole lot in this series, and it's God's anger at sin. And I've been kind of waiting to really talk about this because I wanted to soften you up just a little bit, hopefully get you ready for it. We've not really discussed just the fact that God gets angry about sin because that's not a real popular idea, especially in the culture that you and I live in. We don't like to think about God's anger because in our culture, we hear the phrase all the time, God is love. And it's true, God is love, but I want to remind you, he's love, but he's also holy. He's love, but he's also perfect. He's holy. And I would say that his love is why he's angry at sin and idolatry. You see, we can't separate these two things. Most of us in the room, we think of sin as violating a rule, but I want to constantly remind you all that sin is a lot more than that. Sin is a violation of relationship. It's not just a violation of a rule. This is why many of you, especially at your age, you, I always say sophomore year is kind of like the make or break year when it comes to your faith because you're going to decide about your sophomore year if you're going to follow Christ or not. You'll decide who to kind of be friends with, who not to be friends with. You make those decisions about your sophomore year in high school. And what I think happens to many of you is you start to get jaded because you think to yourself, man, this Christianity thing is just a bunch of rules. It's just a bunch of, a bunch of rules to follow. I'm not sure I want to do this. What, what's the point of this? And you completely miss the bigger picture, which is, no, this is a relationship that God is inviting you 
the God of the universe is inviting you into a relationship with him. And sin and idolatry is a violation of that relationship. It's not just a violation of a rule. You see, you start to look at things like just rules, like that's just all it is, you're going to eventually rebel. And I would too. If that's all it was, yes, what's the point? But there's so much more to it than that. The God of the universe is inviting you into a relationship with him. And yes, that relationship has some rules, just like a marriage does. If a husband, if, if, if a wife cheats on a husband, does the husband have a right to be a little upset? Yeah, he does. Because the relationship has been violated. It's not just a rule. It's a relationship that's been violated in a very deep, deep way. And so this is why God gets angry about sin and idolatry. You think, I think so many of you think of God, you think of Jesus, kind of like a coach who's kind of mean, or like a teacher who's kind of mean at school. You think of them in those terms, and you forget that, no, God's more like a father. God's more like a, a groom to a bride. That's the relationship that the Bible conveys to us. In fact, here's what God does. When he sees that Israel's doing the same thing over and over again, it says he hands, he sold them into the hand of the Philistines. Romans 1.24, it says, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. And so what Paul's talking about, what's happening here in Judges, is God handing his people over to their idolatry. And I want to tell you this morning, that's the scariest place for any of us to be, is for God to be in a position and you to be in a position where God is going to hand you over to your other gods. That's, isn't that a scary thought? Just that, that your life would come to a place where God just says, okay, fine, you've, you want this. You want this relationship. You want pornography. You want this. You want that. Okay, you can have it. You can have it. You can have your idols. You can worship your idols. And you might say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God give me the very thing that I want when he knows it's going to destroy me? And I'll tell you why. Because he's wanting you to want him more than you want your idols. That's what he really wants. And for some people, they have to experience that kind of darkness, that kind of scariness, that kind of horror for them to really truly want a relationship with him. That's just where some people have to get to before they really understand what he's trying to offer them. And so the judgment for idolatry for the nation of Israel is more idolatry. So they can realize that it's a dead end. They can go all the way down the street and realize there's no, there's, this leads nowhere. And for some people, it's not until they get to that point that they finally turn their life over to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying to you this morning, I wish that wasn't the case. I wish we didn't have to learn the hard way. I wish we didn't have to go down that street to know that it's a dead end. But for some people, that's just where they have to go. And God knows it, and God hands them over in hopes that they'll 
return back to him. Tim Keller, I'm going to read a long quote to you. He says this. So God says to the person who worships money, if you want to live for money instead of for me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and emotions. If you want to live for popularity instead of for me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving you. I want you guys to go ahead and discuss your first three questions at your tables. Okay, look with me at verse number 10 of chapter 10. Verse number 10 of chapter 10. Verse 10 says, And the people of Israel, so this is their response, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So, on the surface, this looks like repentance, true confession, repentance, but we look a little bit deeper, we see it's not truly that. Because when their sin is found out, they cry out, but this isn't real repentance. How do we know that? If you skip down to verse 14, we know because God's response makes it seem like he knows their heart. This is not true repentance. Look at verse 14. It says, God says, he says, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. We've not really seen God act this way yet in the book of Judges, have we? Where where God is saying, okay, you come to me when you need something. You come to me when things are bad for you. But I know your heart. I'm God. I know all things. I know that, that I'm not really what you want. So God sees right through their charade. And here's what the people are doing at this point in Judges. I want you to catch this. This is really important. Listen. They are beginning to treat God, the true God, just like they treat their idols. They are beginning to treat God and behave with him in the same way that they treat their idols. And so they're coming to God, if if we can just push all the right buttons, if we can just make the right sacrifices, say the right things, conjure up the right emotions, change their behavior just enough, if we can just do that, then God will set us free from this oppression. And this morning I want you to know that it's possible for us to turn from idolatry, but to still do it in an idolatrous way. It's possible for you and I to turn from idols, but to still do it and behave towards God and act towards God as if he is one of our idols, thinking we can manipulate him, we can trick him, we can put on the charade, the facade, and play that game with him in the same way that we do our idols. And so I want you to write this next uh, quote down. Idolatry is not just worshiping another God, but to worship the right God in the wrong way. And this, I think, is the most dangerous thing for us because it can feel right, it can look right, but yet if you don't check your motives, understand where your heart really is, you will be treating God, the true God, like you treat your idols. You'll begin trying to manipulate him, trying to 
make him do for you what you want him to do in the same way that the Israelites did for their idols. We treat God in the same ways. Look at verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So a few verses down, we actually see what I would say is, is true repentance, true confession, true turning away from sin. This sounds like real repentance because here's how we know this. Because first of all, they acknowledge their sin. They acknowledge their sin before God. Secondly, they're okay with whatever God does to them. So how do you know someone's truly repented? It's when someone goes, you know, I know I deserve the full weight of my consequences. It's the person who says, God, whatever you want to do to me, mom, dad, whatever you need to do to me to punish me, I deserve it. That's the person who's truly repentant. That's the person who truly understands the weight of their sin. And then lastly, they put away their idols. They put away their gods. They turn away from their idolatry. This is what repentance looks like. This is why we constantly say to you that if, if you're really going to confess and repent, it has to look like something. It's going to manifest itself externally at some point where you actually turn away from your idols. You turn away from that negative relationship, that one that you know is sinful. You turn away from pornography. You turn away from unhealthy relationships. You turn away from those things because you know that true repentance entails that. You know that's what it looks like. You know it's a, it's a life change. Colossians talks about putting sin to death. You've got to put it to death. That does not mean that it lingers around and it hangs around. That means it's put to death. It's put to death. There are two signs of real repentance. There's that sorrow for sin instead of just consequences, and then sorrow over idolatrous motives, not just behavioral change. You're looking beyond your behavior. You're looking at your, your heart motives now. Your behavior might actually be okay for a while, but if the root of it isn't dealt with, the heart motives, the behavior will revert right back to where it was before anyway. I want to summarize for you just uh, 17, 18, those two verses. So the Israelites at this point, they ask, okay, who's going to lead us against these Ammonites, our enemy that's now oppressing us? Who's going to lead us against the Ammonites? And so as God does throughout the book of Judges, he raises up a judge to save the people. And once again, as he always does, he always picks someone that you would least expect in this book. And this time it's this person named Jephthah, right? Jephthah, the Gileadite. So look at uh, Judges 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. So let that part sink in. Next phrase. But he was the son of a prostitute. That's not as positive as the first sentence first statement was right Gilead was the father of Jephthah and Gilead's wife also bore him sons and when his wife's wife's sons grew up they drove Jephthah out and said to him you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman we've got to remind ourselves that 
these names, these are real people. So I want you to just think about this for a second. So there's, there's Jephthah. He's the son of Gilead. Gilead had a wife who bore him other sons. But apparently Gilead had a problem of some kind. At some point, he slept with a prostitute, got her pregnant, and then Jephthah was the result of that pregnancy. Now just, just think about this for a second. These are real people, real lives, real family. And so imagine growing up in that household. Imagine growing up in that family. Imagine being Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, living with your dad, who is ashamed of you because of what he has done. Your stepmom, who hates you because of what you remind her of. The brothers and the sisters who don't like you because they see you as as someone who's going to take their inheritance away from them, and it's not any right of yours because you're only a half-brother, and you were conceived in sin, so therefore, you're out. They kick him out of the house, Jephthah, the brothers. And so imagine just being this guy. Imagine growing up in this family. He was a constant reminder of her husband's sin. Imagine the pain and agony that Jephthah had to grow up in, just as a kid. I mean, just imagine his position. Look at verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Don't know where that is. And worthless fellows collected around him, around Jephthah, and went out with him. So Jephthah, he's kicked out of the house. He becomes kind of like a mafia leader, like a crime boss. He becomes like this guy at the circle, circled around by other people who are bad dudes. He attracts some bad characters, but he becomes like this mighty warrior in the midst of all this. So here's a complete outcast and criminal from a broken home, and watch how God uses this man. In Judges 4 and, uh, 11, 4 and 5, we learn that um, the Ammonites, they make war against Israel, and the Israelites go to Jephthah, and they ask him, will you come lead us against the Ammonites? Because they know Jephthah's reputation as a mighty warrior. So look at verses 6 and 8. It says, And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So I want you to see what just happened in this story. They treat Jephthah just like they treat God. They, they kick God out of their lives, and they worship idols, but when they need him, they come crawling back to God. And then they kick out Jephthah, but when they need deliverance, now they're crawling back to Jephthah as well. You see this pattern throughout Judges that they will oftentimes treat the judge in the same way they treat God himself. And so they, they don't want, what's interesting though is in this passage we see they don't want Jephthah just to rescue them. They want him to rule over them. They want him to be their leader, not just rescue, which is very interesting because 
this is something we learn about Jesus too. Rescue and rule always go hand in hand. Rescue and rule always go hand in hand. Many people want Jesus to rescue them, but not to rule them. Tim Keller says this. He says, you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. Many of us want Jesus to save us, rescue us from our sin, rescue us from hell, rescue us from eternal damnation, but we don't want him to rule over us and be the authority sovereignly over our lives. That's where we're at. That's many of us. So what are the areas in your life that you are not allowing Jesus to rule over you in? You say, Jesus, I want the rescue. I want you to rescue me, but I don't want you to rule over me. And so once again, God uses the person you least expect. Jephthah's an outcast, but God uses his rejection to prepare him for this very role. So how did he become a mighty warrior? He became a mighty warrior because of his rejection. If he had not had that childhood, he would not have become the man that he was. Now listen, there are some tragic stories in this room, I know, some difficult backgrounds in this room, and I am not at all celebrating that and saying that, oh yeah, that's awesome that happened to you. I'm not celebrating sin this morning, but our God is a God who redeems. Our God is a God who can take a story like that and he can twist it and he can make you into something and even use the sin the way that you've been sinned against. He can use that and work it for his glory and actually use you in a way that you never thought was possible. And this is the story of Jephthah. You know who else it's a story of? It's also a story about Jesus. Because Jesus was rejected. Jesus was an outcast. Jesus was used as God in the flesh to set us free from sin, to set us free from death. Jesus was used in the same way that Jephthah was. He was an outcast. John chapter 1, verse 11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jephthah was an outcast and he saves Israel. Jesus was an outcast. And he offers salvation to us. He offers himself to us. You guys have a few more questions to go through. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your tables.